Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Very happy to be joined again by Josh Blank, research director of the same Texas Politics Project. How are we this morning, Josh? Wonderful. Ready to talk. Very Um, much so. Now... You know, a lot of the time that we've spent here in the coverage of elections in Texas is now focused on the day-to-day of the election races, I think. And, blow by and, blow accounting. Yeah, I mean, and, and which is understandable. We've, you know, we expect that from the cycle. And there are, there are a lot of storylines in this race from, you know, to, to be explored that we're seeing at the, the kind of blow by blow. But that said, I thought it might be a good idea to step back a little bit and to some degree circle back to attitudes about elections and voting, you know, we've talked about this before quite a bit, but I, you know, uh, even though we haven't been hearing a whole lot about the subject while news coverage has been in this kind of horse race, blow by blow, you know, where can I dig out a story kind of campaign mode? I I think we have every expectation to, you know, we have every reason to to expect that this subject is going to arise again and it's going to arise again soon. Yeah. Um, You know, it is interesting to some degree, you know, discussion of voting rules hasn't been very prominent in the campaign. It's not much on voters radar per our recent polling. I think only about 6% cited it as the factor most important to their vote. Mm -hmm. You know, Democrats more likely to do that than Republicans, but not in a way that, well, right. It's take, you know, dominant or predominates the agenda given what else is out. Well, well, it's one of those things I think we'll get to a little bit further in this, you know, discussion. But obviously, when we're talking about voting and the elections and the issues around those things, Republicans and Democrats can both feel like those are issues, but they can be talking about different sets of issues, different concerns. Right, right. And, and, so, and, and there are other things going on that are also pushing that out a little bit, right? right? So, you know, while election issues might not be taking up a lot of real estate in voters' minds right now. You know, I would expect that at the very least, we'll begin to see an uptick in stories about voting in the in the Texas political press as we get closer to the beginning of, of in-person early voting. Now, there's mail-in voting mm-hmm. uh, already going on for, for, for a, a pretty small slice of the electorate. Right. But early voting is getting pretty close. October 24th, as we record this, uh, less than two weeks away. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I you know, I don't want to say like, the issue is gone. There's been complete silence about it, uh, especially nationally and especially in places where, you know, there are election officials like secretaries of state that are elected mm-hmm. and they're on the ballot this time. And among those candidates, there are in some prominent battleground states, there are, you know, essentially election deniers and, you know, unabashed advocates of more partisan administration of elections on the ballot in these states. Now, it looks a little differently here. Now, not completely differently because right. we've seen things going on at the local level on the podcast a couple of, you know, several weeks ago. You know, we talked about things going on in Fredericksburg, a couple other areas of the state. 
And of course, Beto O'Rourke has incorporated voting into his campaign mm-hmm. platform. So it's, you know, we don't want to imply that there's a absolute silence out here right. and not that we're trying to get in front of, you know, a, a non-response response we <laughs> might be expecting or I might be expecting. But it hasn't been especially central since the rise in salience of abortion, gun violence, and it was never going to be particularly central to the Abbott campaign. So, um, nonetheless, all that caveating and all the, you know, all that sort of weaving and bobbing going, uh, uh, notwithstanding, you know, I think both of us probably think it's not far below the surface. And especially in light of widely covered and, and discussed Democratic efforts in 2021, to, you know, which were unsuccessful to uh, thwart the Republicans' main voting bill, SB1, during uh, uh, the last legislative session, including their exodus to Washington, D.C. And that, I left a lot of scars in the chamber and I, you know, lingering bad feeling. I think, um, you know, that came up. You and I were were both at Speaker Phelan's interview with Evan, which is Evan Smith, right. which has come up a couple of times at the right. Texas Tribune Festival. And Evan Smith asked the speaker about this, and he did say, basically, yeah, there's some bad feeling out there, and the members kind of got to get over it a little bit. Well, I mean, he almost you know. kind of said, hey, look, the, you know, that's the Democrats' problem a little right. bit. I mean, basically, you know, hey, I, <laughs> I mean, whether you believe it or not, he says, look, you come to me with a clean slate, but you got you got to you work, know, you know, your colleagues are your I'm colleagues. I'm unusually magnanimous, well, the he, speaker he, said. <laughs> basically, basically, he said, I mean, you know, more or less He didn't was, say that, to, but be, more to be, le- be fair. No, but more or less was, hey, you got a clean slate with me, but you got to convince everybody else. Right. And, and, you know, look, there were some, you know, there was some ill will that came out of that, which right. is, you know, to be expected. And again, for the way the Democrats left and then the Republican response, there was a lot, there were a lot of, you know, hot feelings. Just, just to it. say, like, look, if you've been following, you know, the, let's say politics and the politics of, of voting and election rules for a while here, you know, there's not, it's not unreasonable to think that this would have been a big mobilizing issue for Democrats, especially when you look at the role that, let's say, voter ID had in mobilizing Democrats around sort of, you know, right. 2008, 2012, really sort of, you know, becoming a mobilizing issue, especially in, you know, diverse, usually largely African-American Right, you know, states or states with large African American populations. You saw this it was was a tool used a lot. We're not again. It it didn't feel like the same emphasis as maybe we've seen in the past on yeah you know, in this moment. Yeah, this moment. Right. I, I think that's right. And I, and again, it's pretty crowded out there as we yeah, had occasion no. to say. So just observing, not criticizing. Yeah. <laughs> so, so so let's no no. So so let's go back. Um, you know, and 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 unpack this a little bit. I think just for context. So we. You know, we've talked from time to town about the arc of the politics around voting elections on the podcast and various things we've done. Mm-hmm. And you just raised, you know, the voter ID debate. And, you know, I I think that while the heat of partisan politics can obscure the kind of more institutional political culture, for lack of a better term, the more, the more structural factors that have shaped the process in the state's history, you know, the arc of that history is pretty clear yeah i mean i mean yeah well i mean you know i mean look at a time when we're arguing about how we present the very fundamental facts of history i I realize people well you know yeah but the truth of the matter i mean it's kind of hard to look at the empirical record in the long term of the state's history you know going back from independence civil war reconstruction from the very beginning of of at least you know that that part of texas history it's pretty clear pattern in terms of how elections are organized and the fact that they are 
they have been used as tools for exclusion, targeting, et cetera. Yeah. Points. I mean, I think the biggest, the easiest and quickest summary statement of this that I always kind of return to is I think, you know, the state of Texas has been found to discriminate in its election rules or in its districting against racial and ethnic minorities in every decade since the passage of the Voting Rights Act. Right. So, I mean, that's sort of the quick summary version. You can go into the specifics of the whys and the hows and, and all that piece. But I mean, but but as you said, the arc of the history is, is pretty plainly and clearly laid out. And, and, and I think there is, you know, there has been an effort in, you know, the 21st century and those sort of what we would think of as, you know, the modern stage of that or the contemporary right. stage of that history to elide that a little bit or to somehow, you know, interestingly enough, because of the nature of Texas history to say, well, yeah, and the Democrats did that. Right. Now, yes, <laughs> um, period, full stop, but, you know, a very different party system than we're looking at now. An obvious point for our listeners, but one that that one has to flag. So, so but you know, but if we look more recently, uh, you know, starting with kind of the voting, the voter ID fights of the two thousands, um, you know, this has been a fairly, I don't want to say continuous, but it, it's been a fairly steady presence it's anyway in active. politics for all of the modern, you know, the contemporary period. You know, there's the contemporary period of of. Texas electoral history. And what I mean by that is you say, there's not really been very many periods when Texas has not been in court. Yeah. For one reason or another over its voting rules. Right. I mean, if you think you about- know, Sometimes it's been redistricting. Yeah, well, I was going to say, you know, I mean, if I was trying to think, you know, over the modern period about when there was any sort of kind of steady state, and you say, you know, maybe after uh, the Democratic efforts to thwart the, re this, the redistricting round after 2000 right. and then once sort of if you look at the electoral results at that point you know that was a point which republicans really entered into their dominant period and ultimately you know in that sort of early part mid part of the 2000s with especially with george w bush as president all this, there wasn't didn't seem to be as much discussion of this and then you got to the end of that cycle and you got into a more competitive environment as you know and you started to see this more discussion about voter id go further and we see you know increasingly competitive environment and with with that, there hasn't really been a stop in the discussion about right. at least at the very least tinkering with voting rules. Yeah, I mean, I think I'd have, probably have to go back and look at this. And, you know, people that know this history better than I have or know the legal part of this better than I, you know, will be quick to see how, you know, this is too overly general. But it seems like, you know, there was kind of a preoccupation with the voter ID litigation yeah. after, you know, that was passed and with the redistricting thing after 2003, as right. you say. And there was a, maybe a slight lull as that was getting hammered out. But then we saw it really kind of come back in full force, interestingly enough, in 2019. Right. Right. And, and, and you know, as, as I'm looking at this, I'm realizing that the voting stuff is an interesting footnote on the common narrative that we use in here all the time and that I certainly use in, talk, in talking to people mm -hmm. about this. It's an interesting footnote to that 2019 session that we think of as being more moderated in response to the 2018 election. Well, you know, it's funny, as you say that, I think about the fact that, you know, the voter ID push, you know, the, the so the voter ID pushes, you know, they have a long, have a longish history, but it really picked up in the United States broadly, kind of in the mid, early 2000, mid, early and mid 2000s. Right. Texas was relatively early in this, but not the earliest when it came right. to pass voter ID law. But when you think about when did Texas, you know, look into voter ID, you know, kind of, and when did a lot of states look into voter ID it was after sort of the Obama elections where there was, you know, and right. I, don't, I don't, you know, like, there's a lot of discussion about the ascendant coalition, this ch big change in the electorate, and then and, and the and, pushback against that, and then the pushback against that, and then to your point, and then you have another election in 2018 where, you know, 
a lot of Republicans kind of felt the brush back, even if they won. Right. And then that was the moderate session, but it was also the session in which we saw, again, right. a large passage. Any straight ticket voting. Now, you know, we've talked about that a little bit in here that, you know, there's a sense in which, you know, some people, you know, there were people that argued against that on the Republican side from the beginning. And there is a little bit more, a little bit of buyer's remorse on that, I suspect. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think it's mixed and one can, you know, I mean, Democrats were benefiting more than Republicans from straight ticket. It was more, there was more Democratic straight ticket voting than Republican straight ticket voting in sure numbers. Yeah. But the Republican numbers were not trivial. Right. I mean, again, I think, you know, there's probably a, you know, talk to someone down ballot and see what they think about that. Yeah, exactly. party. And, and then, you know, that, that was also where we saw the restrictions on mobile voting. Mm-hmm. Right. And we had seen in response to some degree to the anticipated increase in turnout, I know, you know, you want to talk a little, you know, you, you often remind people, and I think is right about Houston being ground zero of this, mm-hmm. that had a lot to do with, you know, accommodations that were made in Did, Houston in 2018 and, and some other places in Texas, but Houston was kind of the target well, of point, the restrictions on mobile voting here. Yeah. And I mean, that's the, the general point is here. There's been a, a pretty, you know, you can, you can focus on everything. When you say mobile voting, just to be clear, you know, to our listeners here, you know, we're not necessarily talking about you know, sort of what happened in SB1 in the 2021 session. and no, bans this on, is 2019. I know. On yeah. on drive through we're not talking about the voter being mobile, but the idea was that you could set up a polling place temporarily, let's say, on a college campus for three days of early yeah. voting. Then you could move it, you know, to the senior center or whatever. And the idea was, is no, you can't do that. But the broader Think point- mobile home, not- Yes. But the broader point here is that, you know, the state has been engaged for the last few cycles in really uh, regulating and prescribing- where and how many voting locations can take place or can exist in counties who actually run the elections throughout the state. And this has been an ongoing area of contention and how they can collect ballots. And we did see some things in the, in that, also the, in that session, you know, you know, there were efforts, not all of which they succeeded unevenly Mm -hmm. compared to the straight ticket voting, the restrictions on mobile voting, you know, efforts to, you know, that seem like they criminalize what could be seen as routine mistakes by voters, um, you know, and to punish people that it just had made increase the punishments for people that seemed to make what had been previously thought of as um, just a mistake. Right. Which which is important to know. We'll get into some of the underlying attitudes right. here, but that's something that's never been popular. I mean, we've asked about this idea of, you know, what kind of punishments right. people should face for making errors, you know, in terms of uh, on their ballots or, you know, trying to cast provisional ballots. And for the most part, you know, most people do not think this should be a jailable offense. They don't think it's like a felony. Right. They, you know, like most of them say, you know, okay, we caught them. It's probably a ticket and a fine or something like that. So yeah, there was not a lot of public support for jailing people that seemed to make mistakes when they were voting. Well, right. And again, well, exactly. Because in almost every case, they're verified mistakes. Right. <laughs> so, um, and then, and something else that we saw really kind of ramp up, after 2020, but they would, again, had its reach prior to that, increased requirements for voter registrars and kind of making people sort of jump through more hoops to be a registrar, to, mm-hmm. to sort of be a, a, you know, what we would call a poll worker, not a poll watcher. And we'll right. have to reiterate that. But then this really ramps up after the 2020 election, uh, the discussion of election denial, the dispute over the 2020 election in the mind of the president. Um, but also, I think, equally important, the experience in 2020, again, going back to some of the major urban areas in Texas, in efforts to accommodate voters uh, in, you know, the at, at the height of the pandemic. Right. So, I mean, a lot of counties in Texas, especially large urban counties, because they have, you know, to some extent, a bigger task on their hand, you know, passed a lot, you know, basically made a lot of accommodations that would make it easier for people to, to safely cast ballots. Now, 
couple problems here, right? Number one, you know, if half or more of the electorate, as we know, in Texas didn't really believe that COVID was a problem at that point, you know, the rationale for making it easier to vote became kind of problematic. And two, the fact that it was, you know, largely the urban counties that support Democratic candidates that were doing this made this an obvious political target. Yeah, and, and look, we can be adults here and say that, you know, if you are a Democratic official in a, in a city and, you know, there is a good policy, straight ethical reason to do this in the midst of the pandemic, but you're also going to be more willing to do it because you are going to see this to your advantage. Well, and right? I think we've been pretty consistent, you yeah. know, throughout everything we've ever said to point out that, you know, election rules are, rules are not handed down from on high. They are not like they don't come from some normative principles. They are rules right. developed by the people who are trying to win the elections to determine. And the normative principles are there to help you, you know, sell these ideas. Right. The exactly. Other, not to say there's no normative principles out there. But and so, you know, SB1 did a bunch of things, banning drive through voting, new regulations on early voting hours, including a ban on 24 hour voting, uh, you know, ban on the distribution of, uh, you know, Significant limitations on the distribution of mail-in ballot applications, um, new ID requirements and verification procedures for voting by mail, which we'll come back to, you know, also a correction process for mail-in voting. Um, And then I I think things that are really going to be out there, uh, one of the things that's really going to be out there, enhancing poll watcher protections so that, and by poll watchers, as I flagged earlier, we mean, you know, non-official not people that are helping to operate the election, but people that are there from outside entities that are designated to watch from the outside and conduct, you know, a kind of oversight, if you will. On on behalf of the parties. On behalf of the parties, um, the way that legislation was done. Yeah, it finally came out. Um, You know, establishing monthly citizenship checks, which is an interesting piece. Um, You know, and then also, I think, really something that we're watching, I think, you know, at least I think is going to be important as we start seeing the elections actual happen. You know, new rules for voter assistance, which were essentially limitations on the kind of guidance response that can come from poll workers at voting sites. It's some of that, but that's part of it. But also, I mean, kind of, it it depends. This could mean a couple different things. The other thing has to do with is, you know, for example. Oh, uh, and also, yeah, third parties helping people vote. Third parties helping people vote. So, you know, if you're bringing your grandfather to vote or something, or if someone, you know, doesn't speak the language and needs help translating a ballot and they don't have that ballot language and sort of what that person can do. Right, uh, and handing out. In assistance. Handing out water, things like that. Yeah, things like that. So there's, yeah, so the, the, that piece of the voter assistance, yeah, there's like, there's the voter, there's the poll worker voter assistance and feedback piece, and then there's the right. more general, you know, how much can people get help in voting? Right, exactly. Right. So, you know, what to make of this? I mean, where do you want to start? I mean, you know, I, I think as we get into public opinion on this, I mean, you know, we've sort of summarized this arc or been talking about this arc from a kind of institutional Mm -hmm. more or less elite perspective in terms of what the legislature is doing but this is part of a dynamic we talk about all the time here in terms of elite signaling public opinion response and the kind of reinforcing cycle that we see here. So we have tons of public opinion data on this because we've been checking on it. Right. I mean, it's almost like what, which, which of the results should we look at? So. Right. And this is, you know, and this is part of the, you know, and then, you know, and this is part of the grounding for the argument other than us, you know, it being part of the brand to go to talk about the polling. But it is also one of the reasons we expect that it's going to come up. Right. Because ultimately, you know, we've been asking a series of questions, you know, 
not only just about the specific legislation that we've been talking about here, but also about kind of the underlying attitudes that really inform people's reactions to that legislation. Because ultimately, we don't expect people to have, you know, really deep thought out attitudes about specific policies around voting in elections. But we do know that they have general attitudes about the conduct of those elections. Right. And we also know that, you know, the the, the attitudes of Democrats and Republicans in this space in Texas differ dramatically. Right. And so, for example, if we look at, you know, Republican voters first, you know, what we find is that when we ask, you know, how often do you think that ineligible voters basically cast a ballot in Texas elections, nearly a third of Texas Republican voters, 31 percent, say this happens frequently. Another 35 percent say it happens sometimes. So you have 66 percent of Texas Republicans saying that ineligible voters are casting ballots, at least sometimes, if not frequently in elections. Only 3% say this never happens. Only 16% say this happens rarely. So on balance, most Republicans think that, you know, this is a relatively widespread occurrence. Right. Additionally, now, again, talking about penalties and things like that, we've asked, well, how often do you think that voters knowingly break election laws? Because we said, you know, there's sort of this being this sort of criminalization or attempts, more, more so attempts than actual following through to criminalize right. routine mistakes. And so this assumes that people are actually going out trying to gain the system, at least, you know, as per the underlying, I think, logic here. And again, what we find is, you know, while 57 percent of Democrats say this rarely happens, you know, the 13 percent say this never happens. One in five Republican voters, 20 percent say this happens frequently. So one in five Republican voters say that frequently voters are knowingly breaking election laws. Another 44 percent say this happens sometimes. And this is where we, you know, we add there's virtually no evidence that this is the case. Thank you. Moving (laughs) on. So then- you know, so then the next question becomes, you know, okay, so we're getting all this policy in response. Well, we ask this question kind of regularly as a heat check, right? So, you know, should the rules for voting in Texas be more or less strict than they are now? Looking to February 2022, so pretty recent data, the plurality of Republicans, now this is again, I should be explaining, we asked this in February 22. So all the policy all the we've been talking has already happened. That is, I should be more specific. In other words, this is after the 2021s, well, after the, the 2021 legislative session when SB1 was passed and all this new right. and, sort of set of rules and, and restrictions that we had talked about had gone into place. And on the heels of all the 2019 legislation and on the right. heels of a decade of almost a near decade of voter ID, legisl- you know, basically litigation. And still a plurality of Republicans, 48 percent, say the law should be more strict. The other 39 percent say it should be left as they are now. Only 7 percent say less strict as opposed to 58 percent of Democrats. So ultimately, there's still an appetite for these laws. But also the other effect of this sort of, you know, constant attack on the system, but also, you know, on the one hand, in terms of, you know, the accuracy of election results and things like that, the the presence of fraud, even though there's no evidence of fraud, is the fact that you also have, you know, Democratic attitudes towards the system, uh, you know, hemorrhaging in a pretty negative way as well. Right. right. So what we ask, you know, we ask, for example, well, how often do you think eligible voters are prevented from voting? Now, not surprisingly, 51 percent of Republicans here say never. If you're an eligible voter, you are never prevented from voting. For Democrats, we see, again, a similar pattern to what we saw with Republicans. A little more than a third, 36% say this happens frequently. We asked about, you know, we asked about whether or not the Texas election system discriminates against racial or ethnic minorities. 87% of Republicans say no. 79% of Democrats say yes. And so what you have is you have... And that, you know, we stuff, that's kind of like, in some ways... When I see that response, on right. one hand, it's unnuanced. On the other hand, it's one of those heat check questions mm-hmm. where you just ask, when you ask somebody a kind of overarching question like that without a lot of, you know, there's no place to hide from that. Well, the right? thing about, and I'll just say, you know, I think someone might want to That's know. That's why we ask that as a yes, no, just to get that basic. Yeah. And I think one thing I should add just for the sake of this, and it's one of these things about this argument that is 
you know, it's it's one of those things that it makes it more complicated, but it's definitely a part of it, which is this question about race and ethnicity and the role that that plays in all of this. But when we ask that same question about discrimination in the election system, we look among racial and ethnic subgroups. We find the majority of white people, 60 white voters, 63 percent say, no, it does not. Only 29 percent say it does. Among African-Americans, 76 percent say that the system discriminates against racial and ethnic minorities. Only 12 percent say it doesn't. And among Hispanics, it's nearly split. 42% say it does, 41% say it doesn't. Right. And so this is, you know, this is a... Versus a lot of interesting questions in the yeah. discussion we're having right now. Another discussion we're having right now about Latino attitudes, partisanship, right. so when, the system. So when you consider these underlying attitudes towards the system, and, there, and again, there are many others that we could sample from that would also help kind of illustrate why this remains, you know, if not front and center, certainly on one of the burners. Right. Right. There for the activating. It's certainly under the right circumstances. It's certainly right? there for the activating. But it does kind of, again, raise this question of like, you know, why it might not be talked about more and why we might expect it to be talked about more as we get closer to the election. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, the why doesn't get talked about more. Kind of, you know, that, that whole space has gotten. Yeah. It's kind of complicated. You know, very, yeah, very complicated. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, we're talking about the, you know, the broader level, even it being a crowded issue agenda, but it's also, um, you know, there's a lot of dimensions to this. And I, and I do think that both parties have settled into waiting for triggers to some degree. Yeah. You know, Republicans probably, a, well, you know, there are different timing issues. There's a rhythm right. to this, but I, you know, but I mean, to go back to where we started, I, you know, i I find it hard to imagine that we're not going to start hearing about this soon. I mean, mail-in ballots are a good example. Right. Mail-in ballots are a great example. You know, we saw during the primary a surge in the rejection rate of mail-in ballots from about, you know, 2% in the 2018 election to 12, over 12% uh, in, the 20, in the 2022 primaries. And we're just looking at midterms, I think, was the reason yeah. for that comparison. Now, ultimately, this was not, you know, I don't want to say this was not a huge deal, it was less problematic in Texas's low turnout primaries. Right. However, but there were election officials were flying. You know, were definitely raised, trying to raise the flag at that point, and I think they just didn't get a lot of well, response. Well, I think they did get a response actually. So they so they raised the flag about this. They said, "Hey, look, you know, if you and I, I think I have a tweet somewhere that says, hey, multiply this out to your average Texas yeah. election cycle and the number of mail-in ballots you've got, and you know, you're, you're rejecting, you know, hundreds of thousands of ballots now." The, th the response from, I think, state leaders has been, well, look, you know, this really – this was really only a problem in a few counties. Right. Now, which counties were those? There's a few large ones. <laughs> a few large counties. Now, it's like, well, yes, it, number one, we'd expect the problems to be larger in large counties because there are more people right. and therefore more votes. But also these are the counties, in particular Harris County, that the voting law – you know, the SB1 was made in some ways to combat the efforts of. Right. And so the fact that these problems are now occurring in sort of, you know, like a – the larger and in many cases, you know, democratic leading counties, even though, you know, the rejection rates across parties were, were pretty comparable. It wasn't right. as though this was like a Democrat problem or Republican problem per se. But the idea that this would, would, you know, not be something that's concerning to Republicans and Republican state leaders and election administrators, let's say state level election administrators going into the general election is sort of not surprising from just a raw politics standpoint. Right. And to fill in a couple of gaps there, I mean, just to, you know, connect the dots, I mean, one of the changes in the voting laws was, pardon me, which was much disputed during the right. discussion on the floor of the law, um, was that, you know, the the increased requirements for validating mail-in ballots right. and for authenticating your vote 
were likely to lead to this. Yeah, I mean, everybody knew this would be a problem because it was just more complicated. And I mean, right. and that is what, and look, that's, and I'm saying that with no judgment at all, it just definitionally was more complicated. Well, you know, I, I would say this, it's a judgment. It's just a, it's a fair empirical judgment, not a moral judgment or a I'm political not, judgment. Well, I'm choosing not to make either of them. Right. I'm just saying it just from a, just from a, just from a, on its face, you're asking voters <laughs> to do more. Right. Yeah. You're asking them to do more in a very specific way, and and, and you're increasing more opportunity for error. Yeah, and that's it, and that's just that just is what it is. Yeah. Okay. I would you know, still say that's a judgment. It's just you know, yeah. a fair one. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and so I, I, you know, I think so. You know, so that is going on there, and I and I. And we're so gonna, that we're, is definitely going to be. I mean, it, I'd be shocked if that's not an well, issue. Well, and you know, we saw it in the primaries. We're going to know about it before we get to the election. I mean, to your point about right. the rhythm rhythms of these things, we'll start seeing rejection rate information. You know, if if Travis County or Harris County starts rejecting five, six, right. 10, 12 percent of its mail-in ballots in the first, let's say, couple weeks of early when they just start to review these things, well, we're going to hear about it, right? Because because there are because there are notification requirements for the rejection, exactly, right? So it, it you know, which which I think the authors of the bill would say, see, there's a mechanism for people to fix this as now. long as you get it your mail-in ballot in early enough, check it early enough, and then get it fixed early enough, right. yes, and so. You know, so we're going to see that. We know that. But I, and I, I guess the other open question then is, you know, to what degree do we see a resumption of the the kind of freelance, you know, non-official activities that we saw in 2020? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, one piece of this, I mean, that is now not quite so much freelancing now, but, you know, will the law encourage more, quote unquote, you know, election observers to be present in in places where voting is going on and to be interventionist and how much will we hear about that what will that look like what will the responses be and then of course you know in 2020 we also saw some of the more you know frankly kind of wild incidents like the steve hotsey employed guy who you know drove you know was following a white van around that he was convinced you know had stolen ballots in it turned in turned out to not be the case and legal difficulties ensued for the people involved there. But I mean, there was a lot of encouragement of that kind of activity and, and out there freelancing in 2020. And I, you know, I don't see a lot of reason to not think that's going to happen again. Yeah. I mean, I would surely expect it to have that happen after the election. And, and you already alluded to this in the point you alluded to earlier, but, but I think the thing that we're going to see in this election is like, or, or what, you know, I expect to be, you know, a story we're going to be hearing soon is, is, you know, wh- how do partisan poll watchers, you know, behave? <laughs> behave? I mean, and, th- and this is within a context in which, you know, there have been constant attacks on election administrators, volun- you know, volunteer, you know, poll workers, the people trying to actually like, you know, run the election, you know, right. for these counties. And, you know, the, the, the SB1 has, has given these poll, you know, partisan poll watchers greater protections. It's put greater penalties and obstacles in the way of, uh, you know, poll workers and election administrators. And the question is, you know, uh, take those two things, add in sort of inflammatory rhetoric about, you know, the, the desires of these, you know, administrators. And it well, is going to be- motivations, right? Yeah, I mean, motivation. questioning everybody's motivations. And and yeah, it, yeah, and, and so, what, so what happens? I mean, I think, you know, there's this sort of, I mean, I think, you know, I'm really interested both in terms of the way that, you know, partisan poll watchers behave vis-a-vis, you know, their their interactions with poll workers. But I think there's another thing about this, which is, you know, how do they behave with respect to their interactions with voters, of which they should have very few, if any, interactions. Right. You know, and I, th- you know, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how much, you get, and then part of this is like, 
there may not be necessarily a, a lot of cases of sort of specific, you know, misconduct, but how much intimidation is going on. Right. You know, and that's something I think is, you know, we're going to we're going to be hearing about this. this election right. Cycle. Because, because, you know, and part of this is that, you know, the. the look, the rewriting of the law was in part. I wouldn't even say motivated, but it's going to have the effect of creating more space for poll watchers to have a presence that they can then say, look, we're not being intimidated. We're not being intimidating. We're just doing what the law allows us to do. Yeah. And that's going to be the discourse that's going to come out of that. Right. Right. And so, you know, I expect, I, you know, I, I do think that's going to be very interesting. And I, you know, if I was to give somebody was to call and ask me about this, I mean, I think what's going to be interesting about that is where those incidents take place there inevitably are going to be some. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that all will turn out to be intimidation, but look, the boundaries have changed. Yeah. And so those boundaries are going to be are, are now going to be open to contestation from both sides. Yeah, the, the legal boundaries have changed and the re- rhetorical boundary has moved well, dramatically. Yeah, and, 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 and it reflects these kind of no- change in the normative boundaries, right? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, one, I mean, one of the things that I was thinking about during this whole debate about the partisan poll watchers is it seems to me that, you know, one thing that could have been done to help this a little bit would be to say, you know, the partisan poll watcher has to reside either, you know, in the county or the precinct in which they're watching the poll. Yeah. At the very least, so you're not sort of, you know, seeming like you're bringing people in from outside the community to police the community, whatever that right. means. But obviously that's not what's going to be happening in a lot of places. Yeah, I, I'm trying to remember. I wonder if there was an amendment on that. Probably not. Because I don't think it was so. Probably acceding too much to the to the premise from the people that would put an amendment for it. But I don't remember. I watched a lot of that debate, but it was long. Yeah. Um. You know, so I think to sum up, I mean, I you know this calm before the storm edition of yeah. second reading. Um. Now you know. Yeah, that could be any reading. Yeah. The, the, the <laughs> day after election day, we can say, and by the way, you know, we can do like one of those pundit check things and go, well, you know, uh-huh. nothing happened. I don't think that's going to be the I don't case. Think so. We wouldn't have done this. But, um, you know, but, I, you know, I, I think where I would want to leave it a little bit is, you know, as I kind of flagged very briefly earlier, in thinking kind of analytically and in the big picture about this. What we are talking about here is this ongoing shift in the discourse around elections, around democracy that was, you know, has been part of a development that's, you know, that's been going on for a couple of decades now. Yeah. And, you know, I I think it's one thing for us, you know, when we have our academic hats on to go, you know, just continue to intone, look, elections are political, their election rules are points of dispute. Yeah. You know, the rules, you know, these changes are not neutral or they're never neutral, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's an, it is a, a related but different thing to say, you know, we are now entering a period that I think is a little unlike what we've seen before. Yeah. In that, you know, in the, the, the rule, you know, we just kind of stumbled on it in a way. I mean, the the shift in the legal boundaries is also reflecting a real shift in something that we've talked about here a bit, and that is democratic norms. You know, the degree to which people, uh, you know, have commonly shared assumptions about where the boundaries are around elections yeah. and having people inside ballot, you know, uh, uh, voting locations 
on the edge of intervention with in particular with, with particular voters and with the officials conducting the elections because there is such a deep suspicion about the process is you know is a different spot well i almost say there's such there's such a wellspring of deep suspicion about the process in the in the public that's been fanned repeatedly but now you know in some ways you know, I think, you know, and again, we're stumbling into something, you know, whereas if you think about that arc that we were talking about, you know, the previous sort of movements were either sort of very, you know, sort of traditional attempts to kind of, you know, uh, distribute power and redistricting yeah. and things like that. And then even when you kind of move on to, to the voter ID era and, and pieces like that, I mean, I, and I was saying this even going into 2019, I was saying you know, there's a there's a very fair argument that the architects of the state's election laws could make about uh, uniformity. Sure. They could say, look. Setting aside the fact that Texas is a very diverse place geographically, population density wise, in terms of education levels, all these things, we think that each county should run the election essentially the same way. And I think a lot of the laws could kind of fall into the, into that bucket, right? And the idea that we just want to make sure that all the rules are the same. One could say that, but we're moving well, into- Well, one, you know, several did, including Senator yeah. Hughes. And yeah. Early and often. <laughs> Tried. Uh, and ultimately, you know, each of those efforts, you know- uh, in many ways reflected these underlying attitudes we're talking about because, you know, they, they move the, you know, again, sort of in a way they move the election system towards, you know, something I think is more towards what, you know, I think Republicans would like. But as we move to this next phase of this, what you're seeing is less, I think, of a discussion about like making these little tweaks to the system and, you know, sort of things that would lead towards uniformity, whether uniformity leads to equal, you know, fair outcomes or not. Right. Set that aside to one in which we're talking more about like, is this going to affect the vote? And you see that with partisan poll watchers. That's kind of the question we're asking right. here. You know, are these people going to affect the way that, you know, other citizens engage with the process? And then further, it connects to this broader discussion that we've we've talked about before about this idea of like democracy versus republic. I mean, if you're thinking about, you know, we're going to have people at the polling yeah. place sort of watching over you. And then the other guy says, well, maybe maybe voters shouldn't choose senators. Right. And, and maybe, 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 right. maybe the maybe legislature it, should. You maybe, know? Yeah. Maybe under some circumstances, the secretary of state should be um, empowered to, to weigh in more heavily as uh, maybe the attorney general should you know, be a little bit more of a, you know, it's almost, you know, more of a coach than an umpire. Um, well, I was saying maybe well, not even the secretary of state, but, but I mean, one of the big things I think is going to come up, you know, probably it's probably going to come up in the session is, you know, is the legislature going to give the attorney general the power to uh, enforce election laws anywhere in the state or not? Right. Since the Supreme Court, even in, in Texas, Twice. seems to be now is resistant to that. Has been, has is been resistant to that, even even against yeah. political pressure. And so, you know, but that's again, it's another one of these things where it's like we're not even talking necessarily about, you know, adjusting sort of like, well, how, you know. What ID do you have to show or when, when can you show up and vote earlier? Right. What kind of information needs to go to the ballot to how much, you know, where can we put ourselves more into the process of voting? You see that at the attorney general right. level. You see that at these broad discussions about representation and federal elections. And I think, you know, you're seeing it now even in terms of, you know, the rights that candidates and their, you know, uh, designated individuals have vis-a-vis -vis the actual people right. who are supposed to administer the election. Well, and I think, and again, in the, in the, you know, in the broadest possible sense, I go back to, you know, one of my favorite borrowed, you know, figures of speech or comparisons, which is, you know, there, there's a certain amount of Munchausen syndrome going on here in the sense of the cultivation of a problem over a long period of time. Yeah. These incremental kind of actions that we've talked about that have a kind of, you know, 
you can laugh about this, but you know, there's a there's there's a certain productive internal contradiction all along to this, mm-hmm. which is on one hand, we're going to like really fundamentally try to make interventions even though they're incremental, things yeah. like voter ID, all the little things we've talked about. But against the backdrop in which to accomplish these, we are eroding overall trust in the system on both sides. Yeah. Right. And so by the time you get now to nineteen to 2019, 2021, see what's going to happen in 2023, you've now exacerbated a problem that was not nearly as bad from a kind of, you know, democratic norms, systemic trust right. level as it was when you started. But now that you've exacerbated, you now have the rationale to solve the pro- to address the problem, but to address the problem in a way that is you're kind of getting at fundamentally changes the nature of the system or at least crosses the, the norms that we had seen before. Well, it certainly has to, because as we pointed out, there's no evidence that the problem actually exists. And so, you know, and then you... And what I worry about when we talk about, you know, the sort of mundane fact of the political nature of these disputes right. is that, you know, we've gone from a from a the political nature of disputes that have to do with tweaking to, you know, the political nature of one that is fundamentally about changing some structural characteristics here. So with that, you know, watch for it. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> uh, you know, we, you know, I, I, I you know, I, and, and, you know, I say that because I think it's worth watching. And, yeah. and, you know, another thing that happens, you know, because of this trajectory is that we get used to these disputes as kind of, you know, the, the normal sort of, you know, one of the normal things we're going to see at elections. I mean, we talked about, and this is, a, this is a good back-end plug, you know, we talked about, you know, the piece you just put up on the blog site that people ought to go look at about, you know, what is a likely voter, mm-hmm. right? And the likely voter screens, it becomes almost a regular thing. It's like, well, it's an election. People are going to be arguing about this. There's going to be some irregularities. To your average voter, It's I think it becomes a little bit noisy. Yeah. Or to the extent that you notice, it then falls into the kind of partisan templates that we're talking about here. Um, but it, you know, it is yet another thing in which it feels like we're in a little bit of a watershed on this, and it bears watching, to my mind. So, yeah, and the only thing I'll add to that, I agree, and I think the reason that I agree is because you know, I think you know we've talked about this, but I mean, all the polling indicates that it's pretty likely that Republicans are gonna, you know maintain their their dominance of statewide elections, you know, if not, you know, because of the failings of Democrats or the, you know, party system, because, you know, it's not it's a Republican year in a lot of ways. Right. I mean, just in general, there's there's a lot of reasons to think that. Having said that, um, you know, if O'Rourke loses to Abbott by, you know, five or six or seven points, again, that's a pretty big improvement for Democrats, you know, cycle over cycle in terms of their competition at the statewide level. That'll take place in, you know, increasingly restrictive voting regimes and what I would expect to be ever more restrictive voting regimes right. in the next cycles if we continue to see the state becoming more and more competitive. Right, right. I mean, yeah, the, yeah. I think the fallout of this is that, you know, even if, and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying this is going to happen, but even if just to, you know, since we're, you know, in a world of non-zero probabilities, even if the, the Democrats were to win a state right race, I think it only... It only it only accelerates exactly. that incentive yeah. for Republicans to continue. You know, the Republican there will be a Republican majority in the legislature, right. and it will only continue that that the incentives that they have to continue to make these kinds of changes. Well, and if anything, it would inflame it because it would give them the one thing right. that they don't have, which is to say, yes, voter fraud is rampant. We just happen to win all the elections, except which, for this one. But 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 that's the thing, though. But if they were to yeah. lose it, they could actually say, aha. 
Right. We've had it. And the thing is, and you know, in the last election cycle, I mean, Dan Patrick went so far as say is the only way that Democrats are going to win Texas is if there's massive voter fraud. Right. And so the predicate's already being laid, you know, again, in a system that is, by any definition, becoming significantly more competitive to say, well, yeah, but if it actually like shows the manifestation of that competition, that can only be due to fraud. Right. And we should add that, you know, the Lieutenant Governor borrowed that line from the president who said that in 2016 as well. Sure. But again- Fellow travelers, though. I mean, yes, and and you know the lieutenant governor was arguably there first in a lot of other ways. But so um, with that, uh, thanks to Josh for being here. Thanks to our uh, excellent production team in the audio studio uh, and the liberal arts development studio at UT Austin. Uh, remember, you can find all the data we've referenced today, much much more, at the Texas Politics Project website. That's texaspolitics.utexas.edu. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back soon with another Second Reading Podcast. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. 